came to save those who were lost. We praise you today and we lift up the name of Jesus. Would you clap your hands one more time? Lift your voices and give God praise. You may be seated this morning if you can. What a glorious season. What a glorious day. Amen. Pastor wanted me to tell you today and talk to you briefly. You saw in the announcements about our 21 days of fasting and prayer. And Pastor wanted me to tell you he's going to talk to you more in depth about this a little bit next week. But just here's some information so you can be preparing your heart, be preparing your mind. Um, the, this 21 days of fasting starts on January 1st, so that's two weeks from today. And the first day of that fast, Pastor said that he wants us to fast the day. So what he means by that is not necessarily to begin fasting food that day, but to fast the day. He's calling us to a day of rest, a day of Sabbath, a day of preparing our heart for that which God wants to do next year. And then the 20 days following, what he's asking of us as a church body, if you so decide to join along is that you fast at least one meal a day for those next 20 days, or Daniel fast. That is up to you. He's leaving that up to you. And if, if the Lord leads you to fast more than that, so be it. But that's just what he's asking of, us, of those who decide to accept this fast and to set their mind on what Christ wants to do next year and prepare, their, prepare our hearts. Let us pray before we get into God's word. You may be seated. It's okay. Lord Jesus, we praise your name today. You are good, and you are worthy of all praise. This is your time. This is your moment. This is your sermon. And I pray, God, that you would use me in spite of my lowly self, my weak self, that you would use me, God, and that you would declare today to these people, the lost, the hurting, the broken, the saved, and the unsaved, that you are good, that you are alive, and that the gospel is for them. I give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be in three main passages, but the one we're going to set our anchor in today, we'll get to in a moment, is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. But today we're going to start in John 1, and we'll be in Luke 2 as well. We're going to get the ball rolling by doing this. I want to ask you this morning, some rhetorical questions. You don't have to say anything. I just want your mind to start to think and get the ball rolling in this place. And the simple questions I have to ask you today are these. This time of year, when you see a manger, when you see a nativity, when you see movies that portray the birth of Jesus Christ, when you hear the songs that we sung today and you maybe have been singing them since Last January, you weirdos. You Christmas, it, it is weird. It is weird. When you hear these songs, when you see these things, when you stare at the manger, when you are going through the Bible and you're reading the account of the birth of Jesus Christ, what thoughts enter your mind? When you see a nativity, when you see a manger, what are you thinking about? What emotions are stirred on the inside of you? Those are the questions I want you to think about today as we're going through God's word together. Our goal this morning is simple. I'll just let you know up front. My goal today is this. I believe God's goal today is this. He wants to enlighten 
people in this room or remind people in this room some of the things, some of the messages, some of what the story of Christmas is all about, to get our minds on what Christmas is really all about and just to remind us how we should be, how much joy we should have in this wonderful season. Because even if you don't have a a Christmas dinner to look forward to, I want to let you know this morning that there is great joy in the house, that there is great peace in the house, and that no matter how you feel today, there is joy available, there is peace available, there is love available to you in Jesus' name. We're going to go to John 1. We'll start there. John 1, 1 through 14 is what we'll read. And this is the account of the birth of Jesus According to John, this is what it says. I love it. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus. You could put Jesus in place of the word word every time in this passage. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, Jesus Christ, the son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He who was there from the beginning of time alongside his father, he who created man became a man. He who created the earth came and walked on that earth. Verse 14, the word became flesh. This is why we celebrate. This is part of why we celebrate. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I love the summary that Philippians chapter two gives us. I'll read it from the ESV version this morning and the NLT because I really like the way the NLT puts it. It puts it a little more plain for us. And this, if you're looking for an outline of this sermon today, it's this passage right here. We'll be going back to it throughout the whole morning. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The NLT puts it this way, though he was God, He did not count equality with God to be 
as something, excuse me, to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave the name above all other names that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How beautiful, how wonderful, how glorious is this fact that Jesus Christ laid down his divine privileges and was born like us. I know maybe you've heard this story 9,000 times. I don't know about you, but I don't want to ever get over the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did this miraculous, remarkable thing for me, that he laid down his divine privileges, that he left his throne and he came to the world that he made and he walked on it. I don't wanna lose my awe. I don't wanna lose my wonder. Christ had never experienced till his birth, he had never experienced the effects of the sinful world that we created. He had never knew what it meant to have any form of weakness whatsoever. Christ had never possibly ever slept. He didn't need to sleep. He didn't know what it meant to be tired. He didn't understand what it meant when you worked that it actually fatigued you. He never experienced that before. He had never experienced physical pain. He had never been hungry, never been thirsty, not, never needed to eat. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He never been hot or cold. Maybe put it to you this way in terms of the South. He didn't know what it was like to be bit by a tick. He didn't know what it was like to scratch chiggers all night while you roll around in bed. He had never experienced that before. That's that's the cause of sin, people. You want to see what sin does? It's ticks, it's chiggers, it's thorns. That's sin. Those things don't exist in heaven. Jesus Christ, they never experienced those things. I'm not trying to belittle what Jesus did, but I'm just letting your mind just turn. I'm hoping it's turning anyway. I'm hoping it's moving. Jesus Christ left his divine privilege. You have to understand, he could do whatever he wanted to do. Of course it would be good. Of course it would be holy, but Jesus laid that down. And he laid it down for us. And that, what we just talked about, is just scratching the surface of what Jesus laid down when he left the earth. We can't even begin to describe the totality of what that cost Jesus Christ. We just can't. We can't fathom that he laid down his divine privileges for us. Why? Because this was the will of his Father, it was his will that Christ be born like us. Not only did he just lay down divine privileges, but he was humble enough. He submitted to God's plan and he was born like us. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who's the name above every name. He was so humble that he was born like we were. He, was, he let his parents take care of him. He let his parents feed, clothe, and change him. Not only did he, was he born like us, but Jesus Christ, we can't overlook the fact that he was tempted like us. He never experienced temptation. He was tempted like us. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. 
We should cherish these verses. Cherish this. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is the humility of Christ. You have to understand, he had no reason to be humble. No reason. Why would he be humble? He was. He submitted to the Father's will to be born like us. And it's not just the humility that he had to leave his throne and to be born like us. But then we look at the way that Christ was born, the way which it went down, and the humility in that. Let's read it together. Luke 2. Lots of scripture today. I don't apologize. Luke 2, 1 through 18. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the, lit, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went from, went from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he, called, he was called, excuse me, Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. He who formed the universe came to earth and was born in such a way. He was born in a stable with the animals, placed in a manger, a feeding trough, trough Jesus Christ. The humility of Christ. There was no red carpet rolled out for his birth. This was the king of kings. A king nowadays, nowadays what's gonna happen when they're about to be born? someone of high esteem, we're going to roll out the red carpet. 
There's going to be tabloids there waiting to take the first picture of Jesus because it was just that important. But that's not what happened, is it? Jesus Christ had no five-star accommodations that he most certainly deserved. He didn't have the best OBGYN in the region. That didn't happen. He didn't have fancy clothes with his embroidered initials awaiting his revival or arrival. And he didn't have that nice crib that his dad took six days to build waiting for him either. That's not what happened. Instead, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, a small, insignificant town. There was no room at the Holiday Inn. There was no room at the Four Seasons, not, no room at the Marriott, not even at the Comfort Inn. It was just Jesus Christ born in a stable with the animals, placed in a manger, which was a feeding trough, our Jesus, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, humbled himself in such a way. And who did he choose? Who did God choose to reveal his arrival to? First, besides Mary and Joseph and the animals, who? Shepherds. Not just shepherds, but night shift shepherds. And go, go research shepherds. Shepherds were not thought highly of. You might know this already, you might not. People didn't think a lot of shepherds. They were, also, they were often known to be thieves. That's why they found themselves in a place that they were. And their testimony would not, be, would not mean anything in court. These were these people that, that God chose to send angels to to proclaim the arrival of Jesus. How beautiful is that? What humility. What humility. I've said that a lot today. It's, it's a central theme. That's a central theme of Christmas, I believe. It took for Jesus Christ to lay down his divine privilege, be born like us, the way he was born, and then to die the death that he would die, which we'll talk about in a little while. So when we see a nativity scene, when we watch these portrayals of Christ's birth in movies and film, when we see a manger, when we read the story, don't let the humility of Christ be overlooked. Don't overlook it. This is central to the message of the gospel of Jesus. But we must also understand as we look at Jesus, who looks frail, he looks just like a little baby boy, we also need to understand that even though Jesus Christ was in fact humble, he was in no way weak. Did he experience weakness in his life? Yes, but he was in no way weak. Let me prove it to you. Jesus Christ was never some weak little baby boy. This was Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Colossians 2.9 tells us, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This was Jesus in the flesh, but he was still God. He was 100% God, 100% man. And this thought of trying to understand what that really means is hard to balance. It's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But I'm just going to briefly try to help us this morning. Although Christ laid down his divine privileges, he did not give up his divine attributes. He did not fully lay those down. Let me explain. He only self-limited himself in the use of him. Christ didn't in no way relinquish his divinity, but he limited himself in the full use of the divine attributes 
he possessed. In layman's terms, he may have left where he was, but it didn't change who he was. He left where he was, but it didn't change who he was. You might look at it this way. Jesus was in no way weak. Jesus instead can be described as being meek. You see, weakness and humility are not the same. Weakness and meekness are not the same. They are two very different things. When we use the terms today, humility. When we use the term today, meekness, we tend to think of weakness. If you think of someone who is meek, or humble, you might think of someone, specifically in culture today, you might think of someone who sits in a corner, who doesn't have a lot to say, someone who's easily opposed on, someone who's easily picked on, someone who you might even call a pushover. But that's not what meekness once meant. That's not the meekness that Christ calls us to in Matthew 5, 5 when he said, blessed are the meek. That's not what he was talking about. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he was not saying that he was weak. He said, I'm gentle and lowly, I'm humble and meek. In no way did that mean he was some weak little baby boy. The meekness of Christ would more accurately be described as power under restraint. Now Christ was tempted as we were, but just imagine the times where he would be tempted, unlike we are, to access his divinity when he wasn't supposed to, when it wasn't the Father's will. Imagine that temptation to restrain his power. Do you not think there were times that Christ wanted to access his deity and start to slay some people? I mean, he reminds us of this fact a couple times when he's arrested in the garden. Was he tells the disciples, said, hey, it might look like these people are in control. I just want you to remember that my dad... Do you know him? Do you understand at the call of my voice who can come and slay? That means kill. Do you understand who I am? You imagine the times Jesus was tempted to do that. Anyway, that's kind of a sidebar. Jesus was full of power that he chose to restrain. So when he was in the manger, when he was born, when he was being raised, I want you to understand this morning. I think this is important that Jesus did not need his parents to feed him or clothe him. He didn't need it. He let them. Jesus was unlike us. Don't, don't just simplify him into some little baby boy. This was deity. And when you see a manger, when you see a nativity, don't ever see that this is just some weak baby boy. This is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, full deity, 100% God, 100% man, God with us. And I think... That's one of the, a couple of the details of the birth of Jesus Christ. They're, they're trying to remind us that this isn't just some wet baby boy. We see the wise men. What do they bring Jesus? They bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What the heck is a baby going to do with gold, frankincense, and myrrh? These weren't gifts for a baby. These were gifts for a king, the king of kings. I don't know about you, maybe when you were born, your parents put a picture of you in the paper. Maybe they plastered you on Facebook. I don't know. But when Jesus Christ arrived, what happened? Angels, angels announced your arrival. Did that happen to anyone in this room or has it happened to anyone in the history of mankind? No way. And if you tell me that's the case, let's talk after service. I'm gonna pray for you. I'm praying for you right now in Jesus' name. 
That's Christ. That's the story. That's the nativity. It's reminding us. This isn't just some little baby boy. This is deity. This is Jesus. Did anyone in this room have prophecies for thousands of years telling, foretelling your coming? No. Did anyone else have a star pointing people to where you'd be born? No. You didn't. These details are communicating to us this balance of Christ's humility and his deity in the flesh. Now, there's a different way to look at it that God has dealt with me about this Christmas season. Sometimes we can look at, and this is a symbol, this manger, the nativity. All these things are a symbol of Christ's humility. But I also don't want to overlook, I also see it this way, that Jesus Christ choosing not to, to embrace what the world calls wealthy and good, choosing or accepting the Father's will to be born the way he was, was Jesus quietly flexing on us, flexing on the earth. And Jesus Christ, from the day he was born, was telling us, he was telling the world, I don't need anything you can offer me. There is nothing that you have for me here that I am in need of. I am not the one in need here, even as I'm a baby boy. You are the one in dire need of me. And that is the message of Christmas, is that Christ needed, or we needed Christ, he didn't need us. The story of mankind is not God's, or not man's pursuit of God, but it's God's pursuit of man. And we see that in the birth of Jesus Christ, that God was in mad pursuit of man, that God was madly, deeply in love with mankind, that God didn't want the hostility to remain, but he wanted to make a way. He wanted to provide a way. That's the gospel. That's Christmas. That's what the angels declared. Luke 10, or 2, 10. Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news. Today we have good news. Today we celebrate good news of great joy that will be for all people. What did they sing in verse 14? I thought about singing it, but I won't. Glory to God in the highest. I heard an amen. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels declare the goodness of God. The angels declare the promised Messiah has come. The Savior of the world is here. He came to make a way for man to be brought back to God. This isn't just good news. This is the best news. This is the best news. The angels that day were proclaiming that God's first promise that he made to mankind. His first promise to man had come. You go to Genesis 3. What was the first promise God made man after the fall? Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What was he saying in those first two lines? He was saying, there's coming a day I know what just happened. I know the weight of it. I know what Adam and Eve just did, but there's coming a day when a Messiah is gonna come and he will be born as the offspring of Adam and Eve. That was God's first promise to mankind. 
And that's why the angel said this is such a big deal. You see in Genesis 3, we see the weight of the fall of man. Go home and read it. Read the whole thing. I know you're reading the Bible through, but take time, read it. And the weight of the fall of man and what that meant. That sin had entered the world through our choice, the choice of Adam and Eve. That sin had separated us from God, made us unclean, brought about hostility that never existed between God and man. That's what happened that day. But the beautiful thing about that day is from that very day, God had a promise that God had a plan, that he wouldn't leave us to our will and our way, but he would make a way for us to know him again. That's the message of Christmas. Not only would he be born like us, but he would confront the sin of man by dying a criminal's death on the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. And Philippians 2 reminds us, in verse 7 and 8, we'll read it again. Or we'll just read verse 8. Eight. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Christ was not only obedient, obedient to his Father's will, all of, when he, the way he was born, he was obedient all of his life, and he was obedient even to the point of death. He was obedient all the way through. We, Christmas without the cross doesn't mean a whole lot. You see, this time of year, we think about the birth of Jesus, but let us not forget the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. See, we don't just celebrate a birth because a birth without his death, the way he did it, and his resurrection didn't mean a whole lot. That would just mean that Jesus Christ came and he said, peace, I can't do this. But we celebrate today, not just because he was born, because he was obedient to the point of death. And not only did he just die a death, he died the most shameful death that someone could experience the worst way to die. The Romans took time figuring out how to punish and humiliate people. He died a criminal's death. I like how this commentary puts it. Crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity. A public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how long, prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of a person. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the preexistent Christ and thus was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to, to God the Father. In Genesis 3.15, it promises a birth, but it also promises a death. It said that the snake would bruise his heel, but he would crush the head of the snake. What's worse, a bruise or death? He might have been bruised, but he crushed the head of the snake. And that's part of why we celebrate. And Philippians 2 is such a beautiful, 
summary of what God's redemption plan for mankind was all along and what it cost Christ to be obedient to the Father's will. So here's the question. We're nearing the end, maybe. Here's the question. The question of Christmas, I would say, is this. Will you be like Christ? What do I mean by that? Will we humble? Will we be humble like Christ was? Will we humble ourselves before him? Will we give up on going our own way and instead go his way? Will we embrace the true life-altering power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is the question of Christmas. It's not just facts, but it's a question. It's a proclamation. Before we ask ourselves that question, and maybe you already have, I want to just briefly look at a couple stories. And I'm not going to read them all, so don't worry. From the four Gospels, some stories of those who were humble. Stories of people who realized who Christ was, understood their weakness, and submitted themselves to him. And then we're going to look at a couple stories of people who couldn't get over themselves. Stories of the proud, who Jesus Christ pursued and tried to reveal himself to, but they did not realize their state of weakness, and they rejected him and chose to keep going their own way. We're just going to read one story about the humble, and that's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, this is what it says in Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho, Christ did, and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to them, to, to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham for the son of man came to, came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus, a rich man, a man who had gotten his wealth stealing from those lesser than him. It was legal stealing, but it was thieving and stealing nonetheless. But he must have been unsatisfied with his wealth. You see, he saw Christ coming to town and he knew something was different and he wanted to see Christ, so what did he do? He couldn't see because he was short. So he climbed up a sycamore tree, right? I'm not hating on short people. I can't climb a sycamore tree. So anyway, and what happens? Jesus sees him. He sees that he's intrigued. He sees that he's ripe. He sees that he's humble and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come hang out at your house. And what did the religious elite, the proud say? Who does he think he is hanging out with such a thief? But what happens that day? Salvation. Humility. That's what happens. We don't know what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. I don't think we were supposed to know or it would be there. But we know this, that Zacchaeus understood his weakness, he understood who Christ was, and he submitted to going God's way and not his own. That's what happened. 
Look through more stories in the four Gospels. The story of the centurion of the guard in Matthew 8. He had such faith that when he encountered Jesus, Jesus said, your faith impresses me. Go to John chapter 4. Jesus encounters the woman at the well. A woman who was an adulteress who had five husbands and was living with her sixth. And what did Jesus do? He read her mail told her who he was. She saw her humility, or she understood who, how weak she was. She was humble before Christ. And what happened when she accepted that he was Messiah? Everything changed. So many stories in this word. And so many stories, I believe, if I could talk to you all, scattered in this room today, where Christ pursued you. Where Christ was trying to convince you that he was the way. That he was the Messiah. He was trying to convince you that you are in dire need of him. That without him, you were condemned to hell. But with him, there was salvation and redemption and peace. And how did Christ draw people? Look at all the different ways he drew people to the Father. Through the words of Christ, the compassion, the prophecies, the miracles, the healings. He tried to draw people and show people who he was in a myriad of ways. The question wasn't and shouldn't be, who is Christ? The question should be, are we humble enough like these people to accept who he is and understand how weak we are? Because if you want to be a recipient of grace, you have to understand how much you need it. That's why Jesus said, Luke 19.10, we read it just a moment ago, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 2.17, Jesus heard and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Why did he say that? Everybody was lost. Everybody was sick. What's Christ saying? I can't save you unless you realize you're sick. I can't save you unless you realize how lost and weak you are. Let's talk about the proud, and then we'll put a bow on it. It's Christmas. You go to Matthew 23. And Jesus, it's called the, the, the heading, if you see it in your Bible, the seven woes to the Pharisees. And we'll read a few of them in a moment. If you, know, you might know who they were, you might not. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They memorized the Torah. They knew the Old Covenant. They knew every law. And they thought they were really good at keeping it. And they bragged about how good they were at being righteous and being good. And this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees, just a few things that he said. Go read the whole chapter if you want the whole picture. Verse three and four, we'll read a few. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they do not practice what they teach. They crush people with their unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Ouch. Verse five through seven. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head of the table of banquets and the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Ouch. Verse 13, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 23 and 24, another woe. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. One more. 25 and 26, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but your inside is filthy. Full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the dish and the outside will become clean too. Now, oh wow, I'll grab it, it's okay. I'm not used to this table yet, it's fine. Here's the thing. It's really easy to read those verses and be like, boom, roasted. He got you. He caught you red-handed. Really easy to do that, is it not? I'm gonna get resituated. Is it easy to do that? Were you not saying, sick him, Jesus, sick him? Some of you maybe. Did Jesus tell them how it was? Yes. Did he stick it to them? Oh, yeah. But don't miss what Jesus was also trying to do. These woes are woes full of compassion. And it might not seem that way to you, but hear me out. In a huge part, Jesus Christ was angry, as he should be, because these people were leading people astray and bragging about how great they are. And Jesus said that's not the case. But understand, as he says these things, Jesus is imploring these Pharisees. He is. Read it. Read it. Understanding the compassion of Jesus Christ. Jesus is trying to convince these men that they are much weaker than they think they are. They're a lot dirtier than they think they are. That they're not as righteous as they think that they are. That they were not good enough. Jesus is trying to convince them through the way that he thought he knew that he needed to compel them. Even if they rejected, he's trying to show them, you think you're smart. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I'm smarter than you are. You think you're righteous. You need me more than you would ever know. And I just wish you would hear me through your pride-filled ears and eyes that you would hear and see that the Messiah is here. And I want you. You see, it can be really easy for us to get puffed up ourselves and say, Jesus is saying, you're gonna get what you deserve, Pharisee. Did Jesus tell them what awaited them? Yes, but that's love. That's compassion. The truth of the matter is Jesus didn't want Pharisees to die and go to hell. He didn't want them to remain in the state that they were in. He was trying to convince them of their weakness and their need for a Messiah. It just looked a lot different than anybody else you encounter in Scripture, really. It just did. Jesus does not want us to get what we deserve. He didn't want them to get what they deserved. He didn't. But their pride was getting in the way 
of them being a recipient of what Christ came to offer. And that's what our pride does. That's what pride does. Pride is an anti-God state of mind. C.S. Lewis says pride is the great sin. Pride is us saying, I don't need you, God. I got this. And it isn't just Pharisees that do that. It's all who don't come to repentance. Jesus tells us, I won't read it, but in Matthew 11, he, he calls out unrepentant cities and he calls out these woes and he tells them, I've done all these miracles for you. I've done all these miracles. You still don't believe. And judgment's coming. But as, even as he says that, he's not, he's not eager for vengeance. It's compassion. He's inviting people to repentance. When Jesus says woe, when the scriptures say woe, it's an expression of regret. And how many people does Christ try to draw in scripture? And how many pe people is Christ trying to draw today that he says, I wish you knew how much you needed me. I wish you knew how dirty you are. The pride gets in the way. To drive this home a little more, and then we will put a bow on it, I promise. There's 2 Corinthians. It's a very, this passage is very dear to my heart. Very dear to my heart. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, we'll read it. This is Paul. He says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, excuse me, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Go read verse 8. There's a thorn that Paul talks about that's troubling him. He asks God to take it, and God says, I'm not taking that from you. We don't know what it was. We don't know if it was a, a temptation. We don't know if it was a physical issue. We don't know. But Christ asked God to take it, and God says, no. This is a reminder to you of just how weak you are. This is me letting you know you need me. And some people, some people in this room, including myself, I've been in church all my life. I honestly don't remember, by the grace of God, I don't remember when I wasn't following Jesus. I just don't. I'm 31 years old, thanks be to God. And there's a lot of people in this room who've been following Christ for a long time. In fact, if you've been following Christ for more than 25 years, would you just lift up your hand? There's a lot of people in this room. Praise be to God. It can be really easy as you become more and more like Christ, like Paul did. He was becoming more and more like Christ. That's what was happening. And he's saying, I don't want this thing to gnaw at me and to keep me from following you more. And he says, no, I want that there to remind you of just how weak you were. And as you watch Paul and you, you study what he wrote, he starts off, he addresses himself as a sinner. And then his claim about himself 
doesn't get less drastic. It gets more drastic. And near the end of his life, what does he call himself? How does he address himself? He addresses himself as chief of sinners. As chief of sinners. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense if you really think about it because Paul was becoming more like Christ. The message was spreading more and more. So why is he saying, starting off with, I'm a sinner, and then towards the end of his life, he's saying, chief. You see, we live in an upside-down kingdom, and we got to be careful not to become Pharisee-like, thinking that we got it all together, right? And Paul never thought that because truly, truly, when you get in God's presence, truly when you're following him, you don't feel stronger. You feel weaker. Let me explain what I mean. Following Christ is you dying to your willpower. It's you dying to your strength, Those who are most used and most know God are those who understand more and more just how weak they really are. And that's the message of the gospel. That's Paul's message. And that's honestly what God has been teaching me. He's been teaching me in this year and in this Christmas season, he's reminding me. I have these moments. Does anybody ever have a moment where you just feel so weak? And instead of me trying to get through that moment, the Holy Spirit is calling us to stop trying to get through it on our own and thinking we got it all together and to start calling out and saying, God, I am weak and I need your help. And God's grace and power is perfected in weakness. And that's the message of Christmas as well. If you'll stand with me this morning. told you we'd be going back to Philippians 2 and to close today that's where we head verse 10 and 11 at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father I don't know who you are I don't know who's listening to this today I don't know everyone in this room I don't know if you are a believer or skeptic. I don't know if you believe in the story of Jesus Christ or you don't. I don't know. But this is what I do know. That no matter where you find yourself today, whether you submit to God in this life, you understand your weakness, you understand He's the Messiah, you understand that you don't have this together, then you decide to lay your life down at Jesus' feet and be reunited with God the Father and peace be restored unless that be you. Even, even if that's not you, excuse me, that no matter who you are, atheist, agnostic, believer, that all creatures in heaven, on earth, under the earth, who's under the earth? Everyone. Everyone, even those who reject the message, will have to declare, will have to submit, will have to say that Jesus Christ is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, name above every name. The question is, will you be humble enough to do that in this life or will you one day be humbled and have to do it when it's too late?